human creativity is wildly diverse. And the idea that we're going to produce kind of one master race is ridiculous. We're going to be producing a wide variety of master races. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm your host, Samantha Thomas, and today we're talking with a journalist and science author, Stephen Kotler, about the ways that science fiction ideas have become realities. So welcome to the show, Stephen. You're a journalist and an author, and your most recent book is called Tomorrowland. It's coming out next week, and it's about the ways that science fiction have become reality. So a lot of the examples that you give in your book actually come from your own personal experience. Is this because you're a journalist and you've covered some of the latest advances? Yeah, it was, you know, in the, uh, the late 90s, I got to know Peter Diamandis, the, the founder of the X Prize. And, yeah, you know, it dawned on me, you know, somebody was going to win the X Prize sooner or later. And I kind of started thinking, well, if spaceships are possible, you know, what about all those other scientific, science fiction mainstays? And I, and I made a list. And for, you know, the next 15 years of my career as a journalist, that was sort of my beat. So I, I, you know, I was lucky enough to be in the room a lot of times when history happened, when the first artificial vision implant was switched on, the first uh, launch of a private spaceship, one of, the, one of the first kind of genetically engineered insects, the first time a flying car took off, all those kind of things I got to see firsthand. And I, you know, also got to see or got to start thinking about the kind of massively disruptive impact this kind of change is going to have on culture. Okay, so this has been a long-standing interest of yours, and it started with a personal connection you had with the X Prize event. Can, can you remind people what that was? The X Prize? Yeah, sure. The the X Prize was uh, it was created by a man named Peter Diamandis, and it was uh, a ten million dollar prize for the first person or, or team who could build a spaceship that could go into space uh, twice in two weeks. So it was a reusable spacecraft, which was the thing NASA really wanted to pull off with a space shuttle but could not pull off. And um, you know, it was won by a guy named Bert Rattan and a craft called Spaceship One mm -hmm. uh, about eight years after the contest was announced. Do you feel that um, people kind of recognize these instances that you give of science fiction ideas becoming a reality? How is that thought of? Well, you know what I've noticed is that I think most people at this point know that it's going on, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of aware. You know, everybody who's got a smartphone is walking around with that, you know, this Star Trek communicator, right? So that, that much is clear. Um, but what, you know, what people don't realize, first of all, is kind of how far along a lot of these technologies are. For example... Uh, bionics. When I uh, kind of I in Tomorrowland, I got to spend time with Doc, uh, with Major David Roselle, who's the world's first bionic soldier. Mm -hmm. And when we were hanging out, it was a couple of years ago. We were in Colorado, and it was raining, and it was there was snow on the ground, and there was a bunch of us. And he's wearing this kind of bionic ankle, and you know, you're thinking, okay, it's a souped-up prosthetic, and we are walking, and he comes to, like, four lanes of traffic that are busy, right? It's not, the light isn't red, and the three able-bodied people totally stop, <laughs> and David just keeps walking. He jumps across the first lane of traffic and halts to dodge a car and across the second lane, and he, you know, leaps over this snowbank to get, you know, to the other side, and you're looking at that, and you're like, oh, my God, this is insane. 
that the level of technical ability is crazy and you know that was a few years ago today right now 50% of the human body is replaceable by bionics we've got my mind brain interfaces so paraplegic and quadriplegics can move their real life bionic limbs simply by thinking about it so we've come really far really fast and what's interesting to me is these kind of developments are starting to encroach on kind of really fundamental things about what it means to be human and bionics is a great example we are closing in, uh, and I believe uh, 2016 we're going to see them on the market on strap-on bionics, exoskeletons. Mm -hmm. So right now the worst part about getting old is losing control of your body, right? It's, it's decrepitude. Strap-on bionics mean you can kind of, if your knee is going as you're aging, you can strap on a brace and instead of just supporting your knee, being an artificial knee, it actually puts energy back into the system. So it, you know, it basically, we're talking about technologies that are going to start making us young again. And that's poking into some really deep kind of fundamental things about what it means to be human. We've aged a certain way since kind of we descended from apes. That's not changed and it's about to. And that's interesting. So this is one of the patterns that you've picked up on, um, is that a lot of our ideas about science fiction, a lot of these ideas that people fantasize about have to do with the limitations of the human body, and you include a lot of those advances in your book. Are there other kind of patterns in the science fiction ideas that we come up with? Well, I mean, the you know, the, the most obvious pattern, the one that, you know, we talk about the most, it's not... Um, a fundamental part of what's going on in, in Tomorrowland, though I do mention it in a couple of places, is kind of, you know, Ray Kurzweil's discovery that once technology becomes an information technology, meaning it's translatable into the, the ones and zero binary code, mm -hmm. it kind of hops on the backs of Moore's Law and begins to accelerate exponentially, right? So these are the most powerful, potent technologies of all time. And you asked, you know, I spend a little bit of time kind of focusing on what's going on inside the body. One of the reasons is biotechnology is currently accelerating at five times the speed of Moore's Law, meaning it is doubling in power every four months. So we're seeing kind of massive shifts there. And this is kind of impacting all over. One of the things I, I look at in Tomorrowland is kind of the neuroscience of so-called mystical experiences. 20 years ago, if you went to a psychologist and said, Doc, hey, I have this experience where I, I become one with the universe and everything else, they were going to lock you in a padded cell. <laughs> Today, not only do we understand the biology of what produces that reaction, we are starting to create technology that can hack it, that can reproduce these same kind of effects whenever we want them, you know, wherever we want them. And people are even starting to talk about incorporating some of this stuff into kind of virtual reality video games. <laughs> so pretty soon the experience of the numinous might be available via video game, which, you know, it sounds funny, but if you if you understand the neurobiology, these are kind of neurobiologically the exact same thing as, as most people talk about as spiritual experiences and just think about kind of what that direct access is going to mean to the world's religions. Another thing that's going to be really interesting to kind of watch unfold. You kind of bring up a, a point there that I wanted to touch on that, that you make in your book, which is that it's not, to be science fiction, it's not really the science that describes the world um, that gets classified as science fiction, although, of course, that's important and, a, and an important first step. But science has to actually create something, right, that, that can interface with our lives to really get the name science fiction, right? Right. Well, I mean, you know, 
science, I mean, the voyage of discovery, most of the time, right, works in the same direction. We, you know, we have an idea, we prove a bunch of stuff in the lab, and then things tend to bleed out of the lab and into the market. And usually, it's when they arrive in the market, when we say, oh, yeah, that's science fiction. And, you know, I'll give you a ridiculously funny example, but it's one that resonates for me because I'm old enough. But when I was a kid growing up, the science fiction movie that we talked about a lot was Logan's Run. And if when you got a bunch of geeks in a room and we were talking, you know, First, it was about, you know, what technologies we thought were going to come. And, you know, eventually it got down to what, what do you want to really want to come. And in Logan's Run, they had this kind of TV thing where you would get to go onto TV and choose your mate for the evening, choose who, choose who you were going to hang out with for the evening. And it was just like this catalog. It's essentially Tinder, right? <laughs> and it was the craziest thing about it is like when we'd be all talking sooner or later after we got through all the cool things on Star Trek, so we talked about superheroes and whatever, it was, oh, yeah, and I really want that kind of sex thing that you um, from Logan's Run, and everybody wanted it, and it popped into reality, and nobody even noticed, but it was literally like a dominant theme of conversation for five, six years of my childhood. So I think there's, you know, that kind of stuff happens fairly frequently, actually, and we don't even notice it. Um, but again, that's a very big shift. It sounds really, really funny, but it starts pushing on kind of sexual selection and things that have been part of kind of the process of being in human for a really long time. And it, you know, pushes things in unusual directions. Tinder is in a, in a way a realization of science fiction. Um, it really, I mean, it, it, it is in a really, you know, in kind of a, in kind of a funny way. I mean, you know, there are really, you know, obvious technologies, synthetic biology, right? Which is a technology that sort of treats genetic code like it was computer code. And right now we're using synthetic biology to produce new foods and new fuels and new medicines, right? But Craig Venter's already shown, and we're moving more and more in this direction, it's soon going to be used to create entirely new organisms, right? These are life forms birthed entirely in our imagination that are about to take up residence in reality. And, you know, to, to put it in context, my friend Andrew Hessel, who's a synthetic biologist with Autodesk, is working on a DNA typewriter, which is literally like the user-friendly interface for synthetic biology. It's the, it's the mosaic, it's the Netscape browser for synthetic biology. So it doesn't just mean like a handful of people are going to get to program life. It means all of us can. It'll be, you know, we'll be able to interface with it the same way that we interface with the Internet today. That's a pretty heavy transformation. Oh, and that, that is horrifying. You know, and it's, you know, I wrote an article, and it's, it's in Tomorrowland, where we looked at the kind of the dark side of that technology too, which is I did this with a, a security expert named uh, Mark Goodman, and we looked at uh, the possibility that you can use synthetic biology to design totally customizable bioweapons that can target individuals, mm. Um, mm. which you know, which means you know, <laughs> we can now murder through disease, and that's really you know, on an individual undetectable level, that's you know, again, frightening, transformative on certain levels. You know, very strange and very dark um, on others. I want to I want to go back to um, your comment about evolution. Talk for a minute about genetics and DNA. Uh, I think this is coming into kind of the public conscience with embryo editing that um, came out of China a couple months ago, where they were able to to literally ed edit the DNA of um, a human embryo. 
of course, these were not viable embryos, but um, I think it, it just started a lot of conversations about that kind of thing. And I, it seems like something that would be in your book because you talk about this idea. It is. It is. I, I actually take a macroscopic look at it, right? I take a look at the kind of evolution as a whole and the right. kind of, there's an overwhelming consensus, right? And extremely well documented. In fact, Robert Fogel, who's a Nobel laureate economist, did the kind of some of the groundbreaking original work on this. Um, but we have massively accelerated evolution, right? Um, we've accomplished, you know, essentially millions of years of evolution in the past 50 years. It's really, you know, incredible. Our lifespan is a simple example that, you know, has quadrupled in, you know, 100 years where our body types have expanded. We're taller. We're, we're, we're messing with fundamental pro- processes. And kind of as Juan Enrique always points out, this is, you know, this is the decade we take total control of our genome. Um, which, you know, you just pointed to. And and it's interesting. It, you know, Andrew Hessel, again, the synthetic biologist I mentioned earlier, he has a really interesting point because people, you go here and immediately people start thinking Gattaca, right? We're going to start producing super clones. And he always points out that we may be choosing our children's DNA and doing things like that, but kind of human creativity is wildly diverse. And the idea that we're going to produce kind of one master race is ridiculous. We're going to be producing a wide variety of master races, which, you know, is also why people are starting to think that this is the decade or maybe the century where we fracture the species, right? Where we actually move beyond Homo sapiens and we have multiple species, which is not the right the first time in the history of the world that we've had multiple hominid lineages on Earth. But it you know, we could be heading in that direction again. So it's possible that we're pushing evolution so quickly through these technologies and other aspects of culture, maybe Tinder, right, that we're actually going to fragment the species? Well, let me give you a really simple example that that, that scientists talk about a little bit. If you take Silicon Valley, there's an incredibly high incidence of high-functioning people with Asperger's and autism in Silicon Valley. And normally, for, you know, for most of the past century, these were not people who were having lots of kids. They weren't procreating as much as others, right? Uh, for a lot of obvious reasons, that's changing now in Silicon Valley, right? Asperger's and autism, you're trading a level of emotional processing for a whole other kind of intellectual bandwidth that's pretty incredible. It's an interesting trade. This proceeds for, you know, generation after generation and starts getting augmented because we're pushing on it because we're messing with our genome doesn't take much for you to go, oh, wow, I can see how that can become a new species pretty quickly. Once you, I mean, the other thing is for a new species, all that has to happen, right, is when we start kind of taking control of our genome, we tweak something that says, okay, these two, you know, these two categories are no longer compatible to mate, right? It's mm-hmm. not that huge of a switch if you think about what's actually, you know, what's the trigger for that. Um, so, you, you know, I wonder if you feel like, some of these advances need our permission to become a part of our lives. Some of the ones that aren't quite realities yet, you know, do I think, you, I, yeah. I, so I, I mean, I, I think that's another kind of one of the major kind of themes of, of, of the book. I mean, there's, there's sort of two underlying themes that kind of at the center of the answer to the question. The first is um, the kind of the obvious one, which is the folks who invent the future do not emerge out of the mainstream, right? The book is just chock-a-plock with kind of maverick thinkers, right? What's interesting to me about all this is how 
predictive science fiction tends to be of the future, right? I, and there's a lot of interesting kind of neurobiology. I actually, in one of my earlier books, The Rise of Superman, I talk a little about this, but there's, there's a lot of interesting neurobiology that says you have to be able to see something, imagine it in your mind, right, before you can create it, and that's kind of obvious. Um, but it seems like a lot of the future kind of does develop right out of science fiction, like science fiction authors see farther, mm-hmm. and then we catch up. And, you know, the classic example to me, the one that I kind of lived through in my lifetime, was William Gibson with Neuromancer talking about cyberspace at the time, the kind of the Internet was not much more than, a, than an idea. And he's talking about cyberspace and then kind of, which is this non-space, right? It's the weirdest thing, yet it's a non-shared space between all humanity. And it tends to, you know, it's sort of unfolded exactly how he thought it would, including like the dark web. It's really, it's really strange how, you know, a lot of the science fiction is furiously predictive. And it tells us something interesting about how imagination works, especially kind of, I think, at the fringes of society where these kind of maverick innovators, so many of them are. are. The, the transformation of science fiction into science fact is, is a giant collaborative effort, obviously. Um, and, you know, I think the science fiction writer had the vision in the first place, right? Um, and you see this, I mean, you see this actually in hard science. Sulikovsky was a, a kind of a Russian space geek in the... Uh, late 1900s who literally dreamed up like 75% of the technology we use in outer space. And, you know, he dreamed it up. Guys like Isaac Asimov and their writings fleshed it out a little bit. And then, you know, eventually NASA started to build it. Was it the case that they drew on the ideas of these novelists? They absolutely, yeah. People have absolutely drawn on, on, on the ideas of these novelists. I mean, you see it, you know, I cover the kind of the world's first terraforming project, and there's like, here's a crazy science fiction idea, right? We're gonna, we're gonna go to Mars, and we're gonna transform Mars into, we're gonna do, kind of do ecosystem sculpting and turn it into another Earth. That's a really crazy, ridiculous idea, and yet we're seeing it unfold, you know, in geoengineering projects to combat global warming in the, what I looked at, which is the Everglades Restoration Project, which was the, kind of the largest ecological restoration project ever undertaken. It was the first time we tried terraforming anywhere. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, sometimes these really crazy science fiction ideas are really kind of out there. And that's what I meant by, like, a lot of this stuff is a lot farther along than we think, because you wouldn't think terraforming is anywhere. But actually, no, we've actually, we've tried it here on Earth, but we've tried it couple of different times, actually, at this point. Well, while we're on the subject of literature, science fiction literature, do you notice any, like, big patterns in, in the, the kind of ideas people are thinking about over time? Well, what's interesting, I mean, there, there's a, you know, some of the ideas are getting pushed out further. For example, um, the question of... Um, you know, in Tomorrowland, I deal sort of with the psychedelic renaissance and the and the kind of what's going on on kind of the frontiers of psychedelic medicine right now, mm-hmm. which um, is another one of those kind of weird, you know, weird technologies that's sort of like mind control. It's, it's popped up in various versions of science fiction, and now we're seeing it turn into it. But a lot of science fiction writers, um, and I think of Ram Esnam, um, who's, who's kind of trilogy just published Apex, I think last week, deals with what are the future of drugs and the possibilities there, and that's that's starting to get really, really interesting because he's also going into things that are in development now, like 3D printers for drugs, for chemicals, right? Mm-hmm. The, the idea is there's a guy in uh, Scotland working on it because he wants to make prescription drugs downloadable, 
which is a kind of a laudable effort. But you know it's going to be co-opted very, very quickly, and we'll be making all kinds of psychopharmaceuticals with it. Ramez Nam kind of looks at that future in that trilogy, and I think that stuff is really interesting. I think Richard K. Morgan, who is really dark, but, you know, in Tomorrowland, I look at kind of experiments that are now going on on kind of what's called mind uploading, which is can we kind of store consciousness in a computer? And, you know, we've been playing with this for 20 years, and we're, it's, it's a ways out. Mm-hmm. But he looks at the possibility of, okay, this is, this is coming. We're working on this. It seems possible. Rick Kurzweil thinks 2045 is going to be the date. Who knows? But he looks at what happens once that becomes possible. And, again, that's a really – his is a very uncomfortable future, but I think it's a really interesting one to look at as well. And I also, you know, Ready Player One is – is awesome because I do think we're going to be migrating into virtual reality. Yeah, <laughs> that is one book. When I read it, I could really see. Well, but let let me let me let me walk you through it though, because it's really cool. So I work a lot of my where I'm the director of research for the Flow Genome Project. We study flow states, states of consciousness, being in the zone, runners high, whatever you want your term for that. We know these are the most addictive and pleasurable states on Earth. And we know that one of the reasons video games are addictive is because they put people into flow. But they're only getting them sort of halfway there. There's a complicated neurobiological process in flow. We're starting to take better control of that process. And immersive VR games are really going to allow us to do that. So I already know people who are working on exactly what they're talking about in Ready Player One, which is immersive addictive virtual reality educational games because they want to make education very, very addictive and they want to make it distributed, right? So you don't have to have schools to get an education. Both, you know, the kind of things that drove us into that Ready Player One world and what you realize is that when experiences in virtual reality become as pleasurable and as meaningful as experiences in real reality, we're going to start migrating. Can you define flow? Because I was going to ask you about the Flow Genome Project later. Absolutely. So flow, it's technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness, a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. It refers to those moments of total absorption when you get so focused on the task at hand that everything else kind of disappears. So your sense of self, your sense of self-consciousness, they vanish completely. Time passes strangely. Uh, occasionally it will slow down. You get that freeze frame effect that shows up in a car crash or what they call bullet time in the matrix. More frequently, five hours pass by in like five minutes. I um, mean, you don't notice. And throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. How come we don't think of some of these things as science fiction, like your examples of nuclear energy? You know, most people don't think of nuclear energy. They're just like, oh, a nuclear power plant. So some of these things are, when do you start the clock, right? Nuclear power is one of these ideas, like power from atoms. That was core science fiction in the 20s and the 30s, right? It really was. So we just got used to it. We got used to it. We didn't notice it showed up. It became problematic. And, you know, what I'm interested in with, with some of the nuclear power, you know, there's three historical explorations. There are stem cells and nuclear nuclear power. Um, and I've just lost the third one, but it'll come to me in mm-hmm. half a second. But I, what's interesting to me there is how hard it is to invent the future, right? Because we, once science fiction sort of shows up, we forget kind of the 
battle that is science and technology mm-hmm. and, and all this stuff. And so I, I, you know, to me, I'm really interested in kind of in the controversy, you know, in the, in the, in the kind of the history of the controversy along the way, because, it, you know, it's still showing up today and it's shaping a lot of stuff. And you, I mean, with nuclear power, for example, we're moving into fourth generation nuclear power, which is technologically amazing. We're not, you know, we're stalled because of what happened in Japan, but everybody knows that if we had had fourth generation uh, nuclear power in Japan, which cannot melt down um, at all, we wouldn't have had any of those problems. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's this really weird thing. And I'll tell you a crazy story where the nuclear power story came from. I got called, uh, somebody asked, I think Wired asked me to investigate small scale nuclear reactors. And I, you know, called, you know, tons of people and I, and I did all this due diligence and Nobody liked them. Everybody thought they were bad. And I talked to, you know, a lot of kind of people on the environmental side at Greenpeace and people on the technological side. And then kind of at the last minute, I decided I needed to, like, call a frontline nuclear physicist who had really worked on this stuff for a while. And I called a guy from the Argonne National Laboratory. And he talked to me for 10 minutes. And in 10 minutes, I realized that ever I talked to probably 15 people before this guy Everything everybody had told me up to that point was totally wrong, completely wrong. And it wasn't as if they were all lying to me. It was that literally everybody's knowledge ended in 1970 when Three Mile Island started to melt down and nobody had updated it. So we were judging, you know, fourth generation technology by first and second generation technology. We had totally missed all this development. And yet the controversy still reigns. And that kind of stuff is really interesting to me where, you know, there are guys kind of pushing science fiction forward and the whole rest of the world is tugging against it. So, I mean, from your perspective, these advances are all very exciting. I think a lot of people feel that way, but can you talk a little bit about the resistance to these ideas that are reminiscent of science fiction? Why do they scare people? Well, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. I mean, you know, everybody everybody and their mother has been in the press lately talking about how AIs are, are going to, destroy the world. Um, biotechnology can easily be used to produce kind of new plagues and new, you know, there's all those, there's the whole horror side of the coin for starters. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just wonder, I mean, the, you know, so a lot, what I have found with, with the resistance and, you know, though I don't write about it in this book, I've written about it, uh, in, in other books, um, a great example of, the, of, of this kind of resistance, same thing with nuclear power, right? Oftentimes, when you look into the resistance, the, the instinct is, is great, right? Protect the planet, absolutely. But there's such a gap between the kind of technologists and the environmentalists that we, we miss out. And, you know, genetically engineered crops was, is a great example of it. And, and here's what I mean. I can take some seeds totally organic, natural seeds. I can put them in the bottom of a nuclear reactor. I can bombard them with radiation to change their genome. I can plant them in the ground to grow something. And what grows, I can call organic. (laughs) But if I actually use synthetic biology to actually, instead of take the randomness out of the equation, but make a couple of precise changes, right, it's a bad technology. And that doesn't make any sense. Like, if you understand the science, that makes zero sense, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about way more control and precision and much less of an impact hmm. than the other. So, you know, a lot of it is 
when technology Gartner has a hype curve when a new technology shows up it shows up with a ton of hype and then it falls into what they call the trough of disillusionment and I think <laughs> technologies can get stuck in that trough for a really long time and we don't tend to update our knowledge of them was that part of your motivation for writing this book I mean it sounds like you had a number of motivations but so, uh, so the, uh, the motivation for the book like where it really started to come together to me is I was so I was in uh, Long Island, and it was, I was with an inventor named William Duvall who created the world's first artificial vision implant, and it had been kind of implanted into this blind man, and I was in the room when they turned it on. So for the very first time in history, right, the, the blind man was made to see, and literally when this was all going on, I was sitting across from him at the table where they, they were calibrating the machines and bringing his vision up slowly, like one light point at a time, and... As it was coming up, I started to realize, hey, wait a minute, I'm sitting directly across from this guy, and this is historic, and when he opens his eyes, <laughs> you know, I'm, I don't want to be the thing that's seen, right? Because I would just, you know, I'm a journalist, it's, it's wrong. So I pushed back my chair at, like, the countdown of curing blindness, and I kind of tried to move out of the way. And, you know, what was I thinking, right? The guy is blind. He's been tracking motion through sound for his entire life. And, of course, his head followed my direction when the thing got turned on. You know, the first blind man to see again saw me, and which I thought was really, really funny. But I also thought, wow, this is really, you know, emblematic of what I've noticed about the transformation of science fiction to science fiction. No matter, like, how hard I tried or how fast I moved, I couldn't duck. I wasn't quick enough. I couldn't get out of the way of the future. And I think that's how, right? That's really what was going on. And I think, honestly, that's how it is for all of us, right? This is sort of what Kevin Kelly looked at and what technology wants. Technology keeps going. And I, you know, I make the argument in Tomorrowland that the reason this happens is when you strip it all away, technology is nothing more than the promise of an easier tomorrow. It's kind of the promise of hope. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to stop hope. It's just too powerful of a, of a fundamental behavioral driver. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you it's an inter- it's it's interesting one way that you can't seem to get out of the way of it and what's coming you know in everything we've talked about you can see it's all going to have really it's a, it's a deep 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 impact right it's it's a, it, it gets at us kind of where we live at at core levels it's going to fundamentally reshape how we feel our emotions how we experience reality all those things are sort of starting to be up for grabs it's not even like the things we build our beliefs on it's the things that are so fundamental underneath our beliefs that we don't even notice them and that's the level we're starting to impact that and that once I sort of realized all those things, that's what drove me through the whole book and kind of kept the investigation going. How much of the work being done is do you think is a secret? Um, like how much of it do we could you never have written about? So when it comes to secret stuff, in my experience, um, there's not much of a secret. I mean, there's certainly stuff in aerospace and defense, but. DARPA, who's really out at the cutting edge, you know, they put out briefs about what they're looking for, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we, you get to see that stuff. Um, what you don't see, so for example, the artificial vision implant I talked about, William Gobel was like, he was sort of a maverick scientist. He did his operation in Portugal because it's illegal in America. When I was with him, he, he's passed away a couple of years now, so I think I can say this, but when I was with him, um, in Long Island, I'm pretty sure he was breaking a bunch of zoning laws, a bunch of U.S. laws by doing what he was doing in that lab, right? So, you know, there's, there's, there's that kind of fringe punk rock mm-hmm. element here. 
to end, what do you think the most exciting work is that's being done right now? I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's not super, 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 well, you know, my own field, flow science is really amazing to me because it's, we're starting to really decode kind of ultimate human performance and then kind of the neurobiology of ultimate human performance. So that's really interesting. I think we're going to, you know, the, the, what the possibility curve for, for, for those species is going to continue to go up and up and up. And so, you know, that's really super interesting to me, but on the kind of what am I paying a lot of attention to? 3D printing is just so exciting right now. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it's going to democratize the $10 million, trillion dollar manufacturing industry. And, you know, a couple weeks ago, I'm sure you saw this, but a woman figured out that with a $70 3D printer and standard, you know, inkjet inks, she could essentially print all the makeup in the world. So the $265 billion cosmetic industry just got, you know, kind of disrupted by a woman in a $70 3D printer. That's fantastic. I know, right? Okay. Well, thank you, Stephen, so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Once again, that was Stephen Kotler, and his new book is called Tomorrowland. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. For more from us, tune in next week or check out our Facebook and Twitter page. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon. Enjoy the beautiful weather and keep on grokking. <laughs>